This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, so, again, my name is Daniel Grimberg. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Film and Media Studies here at UC, UCSB. And some of the things that I study are the War on Terror, Guantanamo, Drone Warfare, and lately I've been writing about this film. So it's really my privilege to get to introduce the producer and director of National Bird, Sonia Kennebec. Uh, just a little bit about her. She is an investigative journalist. She got a master's in international affairs. She worked for many, many years producing television documentaries for German public television. And I think all of those experiences really speak to her expertise and her uh, preparation for making this film, which is a very difficult film to make for multiple reasons, some of which we'll get into. Um, but particularly thinking about all the different scales of drone warfare, all the different perspectives, all the different scales, and I think her experiences and her background, which isn't maybe traditional for a documentarian, have really equipped her to tell this story so effectively. Um, and fortuitously today, her new uh, op doc is on the front page of the New York Times. It's called From Journalist to Hostage, thinking about a journalist who was taken hostage in Afghanistan. And I was waiting to interview her earlier today, and I was just looking at the New York Times, and there it appeared. So I highly recommend everyone read what she wrote and watch the documentary as well. Um, it speaks a lot to the risks and the challenges of making critical independent documentaries about national security, about issues that are still confidential and classified. And I think it gives another perspective to why it's so important to tell those kinds of stories. Um, so by way of bio, I would also add that Sonia Kedebeck is someone who is taking chances that we need to be taking. She's assuming risks. As an independent documentarian, those risks are financial, they're legal, they're taking risks with needing to secure your technology, with protecting your sources. And for so many people, that's not a challenge they're willing to take on. Um, but amid this moment of vast government opacity, of secret programs, we need people like Sonia to tell these stories and tell them in compelling, striking ways that capture audiences' attention. Um, so I'd like to begin just by asking, what initially drove you to pursue such a complicated and challenging topic? Thanks for this um, really kind introduction. Um, and I, I also want to encourage everyone to, um, you know, be courageous. Um, I think the whistleblowers um, in this film are, are the most courageous and the people in Afghanistan, of course, who decided to go openly in front of the camera and share their stories with, with us and you know, just be so open about their experiences. And I think, um, you know, we as journalists and filmmakers should not have less courage than them. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think in, you know, in, in, in our societies, it's, it's, you know, it's, um, we are increasingly, or I, I see it too, you know, people are increasingly self-censoring. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's, that's a big risk. So, um, you know, I think we should all be courageous and support each other and um, 
in you know speaking out loudly and um, and strongly for democracy and you know for free press and free speech. And yeah, so when I started um, with the research in in um, early 2013, there was so little information out about the drone program, um, and and I just it was really just curiosity at the beginning. I I wanted to know more about it because it just you know it it seemed like a weapon like directly out of a sci-fi film and um, and the first you know reported drone strike was. You know, I mean, there, there, there are different reports, but I think the Atlantic says in, um, the first reported drone strike was in late 2001. And so by 2013, there was still so little information out in the public. And it just, I, I was wondering why, why was there so much secrecy oh. around, you know, such a you know, transformational weapon in, in, in warfare. And so I, I really wanted to, you know, get information from the people directly impacted, the people who worked in the program and the people in the target countries. And that was, that was my idea. So I, I really started with an issue, a topic, and then I went out and tried to find the sources, which was not easy because um, the, the three whistleblowers in National Bird all had top secret clearance. Um, Daniel still had top secret clearance when we started filming. And um, yeah, and I, I did a lot of Field research, um, you know, I went out to veterans conventions and peace protests and, you know, did, did a lot of like internet research and, and, you know, talking to people who I knew in, in the veterans community to, to find these sources, um, and tell me their side of the story because the, the public side, the government side, I, I thought was very well represented in the media. Okay. Since we're starting to get into this area, what were some of the biggest challenges you encountered along the way? Um, I mean, the first challenge was was really to find people who w- were willing to speak because it, it meant a risk. And I actually discussed it early on with them that, you know, I, I will try to minimize the risk. And I was, you know, I used my first development money for the film to hire an, a First Amendment attorney. And so I... I really, I knew this was a high-risk project, and I tried to minimize it as much as possible, but um, I told my subjects that there is still going to be a risk, and, you know, they have to decide if they you know, want to speak out. And, um, yes, yeah, so, you know, finding people who, who wanted to share their stories was was a big part of it. The, the research is, is um, yeah, substantial for an issue issue like this. And um, yeah, and then then the second part is, of course, like throughout the production to to secure the project. So I was working with attorneys, with a whistleblower attorney, first amendment attorney. Um, Daniel was raided in the middle of the production. It's actually the the raid. It's you know I I always see this film as two parts. So the first part is really a lot of explanation, um, you know, insight into the drone program because I I started realizing during my research that a lot of people. Um, really didn't have um, too much knowledge about you know, what drones are, how big they are, how they work, how the program works. And, and it, it, I think it's partly because of the, you know, the, the public narrative was you know, surgical strikes, pre- precision weapons, um, um, you know, all this terminology that just sounds like you are you know, very specifically targeting one person. So um, I still see, you know, I get the feedback at screenings, people say, yeah, actually, they carry big 
weapons and bombs. It, you know, I, I, I thought, you know, I envisioned something different. Mm -hmm. So um, I, it was really important for me to explain the program and, um, you know, also have the Obama sound bites to, to show that side of the story and then the surveillance system behind the drones. Um, what Lisa was working on, I, I think that's really important because that is the DGS is actually a weapon system it, itself, and you know it can suck up all of this data and you can connect different weapons to it. You know, semi-autonomous weapons, autonomous weapons in the future. They are all part of the same gigantic global surveillance system, and so um, that was important for me to to explain. And then the second risky part, of course, was traveling to Afghanistan. Now, let's talk a little bit about that because it is such a powerful part of this film. What mm -hmm. kinds of security measures and precautions do you take in, in relation to that part of the filming? Well, um, I mean, it, it, we, we try to prepare as much as possible. Um, when, when I say we, it's, it's, it was a very small production team that made this film. And the credits are always long because post-production requires a lot of people, but the core team was really... My production partner, Ines Hofmann-Kanna, my director of photography, very um, important part of um, the team, Torsten Lapp, um, him, Torsten and me, we traveled to Afghanistan together, the two of us. Um, I'm also the, the sound technician and um, the editor, Maxine Gödek, and the composer, Inza Rudolf. And so five people were, you know, the, the core team. And so... Yeah, before Torsten and I went, we inquired about, and I speak about that in my article in, in, in New York Times Opdocs, um, we inquired about kidnapping insurance. And uh, it was around $20,000 for the two of us. And we just couldn't afford it. And um, so we decided um, um, to you know, have health insurance and you know, with Reporters Without Borders, um, very, very good you know, crisis area health insurance, and, um, you know, they fly you out, you know, in case of, you know, of any emergencies. And, um, and then, you know, I really tried to research the people who we were working with, you know, vet them, make sure that, um, you know, we would, you know, be as safe as, as possible. But of course, there's a risk if you go into a country like that. But I, I think it was essential for, for this film because uh, almost 30% of the film actually takes place in Afghanistan. And um, and the impact um, in these countries, and I hope it comes across. It's not just the bomb, but it's it's the threat. It's you know being under constant surveillance, knowing you know that you can be bombed, and you know children being afraid of the skies. I and mean, it really changes so, as society in these these countries. So so many of the people that we see in the film are vulnerable in multiple ways. What is it like working with people who are psychologically, physically, legally vulnerable? It's that it also requires, I think, you know, a lot of thought and preparation. Um, I've I've been you know, I started this year to give source protection workshops, where I, um, you know, a lot of people who, you know, have come up to me to ask about you know, how do you protect, you know, a, you know, a team or a project like this. They usually think about operational security, meaning encryption. Um, you know, secure phone calls, you know, encrypting material and all that, which I think is essential and very important and not just for, you know, the director and the producer, but the entire team, um, you know, should, should know how to 
encrypt material and I think you know journalists and filmmakers have to become more sophisticated and ideally spread it to everyone else because the more people use it you know the more um, chatter is is out there so you know you're not targeted if you know the individual people who are using it but it's important for everyone I think everyone needs privacy and um, and secrets as well mm. and um, so operational security and then legal protection but I also included trauma protection and um, which means, you know, how do you have, you know, best practices during interviews? Um, of course, you, you want to have the information, but you also want people to, you know, not be re-traumatized and, um, and make sure they are, they are well after an interview. That's one of the things that I, I think about, you know, like I, I prepare my, my subjects beforehand and tell them, you know, this is going to be very emotional. They often say, hey, I've talked about this before, but um, I, I usually warn them that I ask questions that family members don't mm -hmm. ask um, or, you know, friends and, and, and family don't, you know, wouldn't bring up. So I think that's important to prepare people beforehand and, and then um, to make sure that they are okay afterwards, you know, that they are with family or friends or, you know, sometimes my director of photography and me would, you know, spend a lot of time with them afterwards, have dinner and just, you know, kind of have a, you know, try to have a safe um, environment. And then you also have to think about yourself and your team because making films um, like this and most most documentaries that I, I've seen, are, you know, social issue documentaries, you work with people who have experienced trauma so, um, yeah, I think you have to put a lot of thought into the subjects in front of the camera, but also on yourself and your team, um, because, you know, people can also, journalists and filmmakers can become traumatized. Yeah, we see a trace of that in the film when Heather says, you know, people think I'm just doing this for myself, but every time I talk about it, it just dredges up all these things all over again. So we even yeah. see it in the film, how raw it still is for her. Um, I wanted to switch for a moment from production to thinking about the aesthetics of the film. There are lots of fascinating techniques that you use, and I think the range of techniques really helps sell the scale and the complexity of drone warfare. But one of the more affecting and disconcerting choices you made was the aerial shots. So I wondered if you could touch on that a little bit. Yeah, of course. Before I did the the aerial shots, I you know I was thinking a long time. No, can I do it? You know, it's very intrusive. Mm -hmm. um, but I think for a film like this, it it makes a lot of sense because I really wanted audiences in the Western world to have a sense of how it is to live under drones, under this constant surveillance. And and the feedback has been from from audience members that when they see the first. You know, the, the first image, um, you know, in, in the film is, you know, it starts in black. You know, Heather says, you know, we were omniscient in people's lives. And then we see, you know, this, this black and white footage um, of, of a bomb, you know, being, being dropped. And, and, and then later on, you see these, these aerials and, you know, a lot of them in, in you know, in, in the West, you know, the Bay Area. We have a lot of you know, aerial footage in, in the Bay Area and, and New York as well in different places. And... And yeah, I I think it's it is still you know for me when I see it it's it strikes me how people don't even notice that they are being watched from above and they're just going about their lives and you know crossing the street and 
um, yeah, and walking outside, but they have, you know, it's, it's really intrusive um, to have, you know, this, this eye in the sky, the surveillance ab above, above you. And of course, where, you know, where the drones can fly, they can also be armed. One of the things I've noticed in this screening, because I've seen the film maybe five times, but I hadn't noticed this before, was the first shot we get is the ceiling fan above Heather in the diner. Mm -hmm. And then when we go to Afghanistan, we again get a shot of a ceiling fan. So there's also this really interesting visual and sonic bridge between the domestic space and the international space. And the ceiling fan actually for me has, has more meaning too. I um, When I first met Heather and she was telling me about her war experiences and her, her trauma, um, it really reminded, you know, like, the, you know, yes, you know, the, the way we wage war has changed dramatically. Um, you know, you, you don't even have to go into a war zone anymore. You can be in complete safety in a container, um, you know, in, in, in a base in, in California and, and wage a war halfway across the world. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy when you, you really think about it. Um, but, you know, it's, what I saw in Heather is, and, and others, is that, the, you know, however, you know, even though the, the type of warfare, the methods of war have changed so dramatically, the impact it has on her and others, you know, is, is, is in a way similar to, um, you know, people who have been, you know, in, in, in combat, at least, you know, at my screenings, combat veterans have told me, oh, like, yes, they have waged a different type of war, and, and you know, their experience was very, very different than mine, but what they are going through is so similar to, you know, what I've been going through. So when I first heard Heather's description, it reminded me of, um, you know, like, veterans, I, you know, veteran stories from the Vietnam War even, and I, I had to think about Apocalypse Now, and yeah. you know, the first scene in Apocalypse Now, um, you know, in, 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 in his bedroom and a ceiling fan, it reminded um, Martin Sheen of the, the helicopters, and, um, and it's, yeah, it, I, I just saw these, these parallels, and it, I'm, I'm kind of referencing, you know, this film in there, because, you know, yes, Warfare has changed, but it's still, you know, the, the act of killing is still impacting um, the people who, who participate in it so profoundly. Well, while we're talking about that, let's also think then about the sounds of the ceiling fan and the sounds of the helicopter. And again, in Afghanistan, we hear the helicopter fly overhead and we see the reactions of the people testifying and how viscerally they're affected mm -hmm. by that sound. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the sound design of the film because that is such a striking element and it augments the visuals so powerfully. Yeah, I think a sound and documentary film is, is, is really important because that's where the emotion comes from. You, you feel it. And I wanted to um, have these visual sounds because I, I, I really don't, I don't have a lot of music vocabulary, I, um, but... I, my composer is really good at translating my language, so I would always describe feelings and emotions to her. When I, you know, asked her about, you know, told her about scenes, I said, you know, like you, you should, you should feel it, you know, on, a, on your spine, because that's what I felt when I, when I landed in Afghanistan, and you know, the, the airport in Kabul is, is a military airport as well, and you, you know, the, and sometimes, you know, there, you know, there, the planes are being shot at, and and so the moment you are landing, you you feel this this tension and you feel it in the back of your, you know, you just feel it on your spine and, and 
throughout you know our filming there I, I felt it and that's kind of the feeling I wanted to get across and I think it comes a lot from from the sounds and we um so my composer she actually she not just um yeah you know co composes the entire music but every sound in this film has been naturally recorded see she she records natural sounds she modifies and builds her own instruments and um, and also uses sounds that I had recorded or um, found somewhere. For example, um, she we have one sound in the film. It's the it's a recording of an Israeli drone in Palestinian territories, mm, wow. and two people have actually heard the sound in the film without even knowing about it. They heard the sound of a drone, and um, and then we have yeah the sound of the helicopters and this mm -hmm. kind of you know up and down. And it's like this the sound is the ceiling fan also makes. And and these are um, for me this repetition of these sounds just you know evokes different emotions and feelings and and it it's 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 this this feeling of you know something that's above you it is threatening and yes I really wanted to get that across because that's what we witnessed in Afghanistan these helicopters above our heads all the time during the interviews and um, of course the the drones everyone knows what a drone is in Afghanistan. Yeah. So the first time I watched this film was on my laptop, and then I watched it multiple times on Netflix on my television, but watching it and hearing it in the theater with so many other people, it was a completely different experience. It felt so much more immersive and powerful. So I'm really glad I had that opportunity to do that. Um, and then in terms of aesthetics and visuals, uh, also absences I wanted to think about. Were there things that you would have liked to have filmed, given more money or time or access are there things that you know logistically just weren't possible that you think would have been useful or important? Mm. I've never had that question before. <laughs> um, I don't think so. Good. Um, and not really. I mean, well, we we, we tried to get access to uh, military bases. Right. Um, that, and we actually tried it throughout the entire production. So we we did um, requests to the drone bases. They you know they have led very selected media on the, on you know bases before. So um, based on that, we tried to get access, but we um, we were not even denied. But um, for the longest time, but they would just not get back to us or postpone yeah. and postpone for months and months and months. So we had to make fixed de deadlines. Um, because it's they are very smart and like not writing back a no or like a response, but just like not responding essentially. And um, so we would have liked to have more access and have you know official interviews as well. But um, you know we we were not allowed on on any of these bases. It's 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 fair. I filmed the military bases before, so um, I'm I'm sure they've done all the background checks on me. But um, mm. yeah, we. We were let, not let in, so that that would have been um, interesting, I think, to have that type of access. And then we did FOIA requests, and you know, we we tried to. Um, the reenactment is based on um, the radio traffic transcript um, um, of you know real you know drone drone traffic, um, you know, the radio traffic of, of a drone crew, and we tried to get um, at least the sound or the video, um, but it but it was um, denied to us. Yeah, I've written about Guantanamo Bay and the access to documentarians and journalists, so it doesn't surprise me to hear this. It's very, very limited, and then even if you are granted access, they screen everything, delete anything that 
doesn't mm-hmm. meet regulations and the guidelines are very arbitrary. So it's very easy to say this does or doesn't meet the standards. Yeah, so that's not real access either. Yeah, exactly. If you have, and I've, I've done it before too, where I had three PR people, you know, after trying for a year to get, you know, on Rammstein, the, the, the base in Rammstein, um, it's, they wouldn't let us film anything essentially. So it's, you know, that's not real access either. Exactly. You can say you have transparency, but what kind of transparency, what kind of mm-hmm. access is it if it's so limited that it's just, you know, access and name only? Um, so shifting gears again, I wanted to then think about the different kinds of audiences that have screened this film. I know that you've shown it at hacker conventions, for example. Um, so what are some of the different responses you've gotten from the audiences that you've screened this film in front of? Yeah, it's... Um... At the hacker convention, I, it was a very, um, very interesting, uh, short notice, uh, invitation that I, I received to speak. And it was actually a big convention. It was the CCC in, in, in Germany. So there were 12,000 people. And, um, where I introduced, I was invited to introduce the film. And then we showed it, um, at, at midnight in front of a, you know, 200 people audience. And my initial expectation was that it's not going to connect with, you know, all these young, you know, tech guys, hackers, because they, you know, it, it's it's not technical enough for them. But surprisingly, they they really loved the film. They, you know, gave standing ovations, and we did a three-hour Q&A afterwards until 4 a.m. in the morning. And um, We don't have time to do that today, <laughs> unfortunately. Sorry. <laughs> but it, I, I really realized that they were so happy that, you know, we were tackling the subject and we were really breaking this down because they they knew a lot what was going on and they really understood the whole magnitude yeah. and you know, and that's what I tried to explain earlier the, the whole surveillance system the things that are connected to it you know what you can do with it you know you, you just have to it kind of look into the future already you know the the deg- I'm I'm really what I'm curious about is the degree of automation that's happening already with algorithms for example you know and like in the in the you know, how do you find and identify certain targets and how you know how big is the automation you know as part yeah. of that already and then the next steps you know like the research is going toward um you know swarm technologies um Inter interacting swarm technologies, autonomous drones. You know, you have semi-autonomous tanks already, and and all of these weapons, you know, work. You know, are being plugged into this surveillance system that can, you know, suck up you know data from everything. And you know, look at our cars nowadays; they are all connected to the internet. Our fridges, TVs, you know, all this new technology. So we we you know, we can buy these. Devices, I don't know what they call that you put in your house and like tell them to switch on your lights and off your light, but they listen to you. And you know, the if your our cell phones, of course, they listen to all our conversation and it's, it's so intrusive and just the magnitude of that, the control that you have when you collect and store all of this data. Yeah. I mean, just look at the Stasi, what they were able to do with the technologies that were, um, you know, existed back then. Yeah, so it makes sense hackers would respond to this thinking so much about whistleblowing, about freedom of information. Mm-hmm. Those are very similar values to what they espouse. And then has there been pushback from any kind of audience member, any particular critiques that have been raised? Um, I expected more. Okay. <laughs> it's, I think, you know, to a certain extent, of course, you know, people who go to these screenings... Um, 
might be a little bit self-selected already. Right. Um, so it's, I, I'm trying to think. Um, I, we've, we've had a pretty big military veteran audience. And we, um, so the film was shown on, on PBS, ITVS, the independent television service, was our largest funder. And I'm very thankful they got on board very, very early. And, um, and um, Independent Lens actually sponsored a 75-city community screening tour, in-person screenings. We have an educational guide. That, actually, we have two educational guides that go with the film. So if you're interested, nationbirdfilm.com has a Get Involved section and it has you know, these, these guides with more background information online. And so we screened the film in like Colorado Springs. I went there, um, Nebraska. Um, we... Like, just, I mean, really all over the coast, of course. Um, uh, I went to St. Louis, um, and there was, there was an interesting audience. Um, a lot of veterans, and actually combat and war veterans as well, but um, they, they really, especially in Colorado Springs, there was a big military audience. And, um, and it was really one of the best discussions I've had because they, they started sharing their own experiences yeah. Of trauma, and and that's where I met this one infantryman who um, he he had been deployed I think 36 months in combat, and and he he stood up after screening. He said, "I can really identify with Heather," and I thought it was really re- remarkable because you know of course there are people mainly, you know the most criticism that I've seen is online um, by I don't know if you know usually it's anonymous you know you don't know if they're military enthusiasts you know. Or real um, or trolls, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or trolls, or you know maybe also you know service members or veterans, you know um, as, as well. But um, you know there are some people who say, um, oh, why are these people traumatized? They have not seen combat. But there are studies now out about you know post-traumatic stress disorder and also moral injury that um, uh, it's often visually triggered. And so, and then also imagine, you know, Heather, at, you know, these imagery analysts are between 18 and 25, and they have to make these very far-reaching calls. Is this person a terrorist or is this person a civilian? And, um, and at, at that age to make, you know, a call like that that would, you know, can eventually lead to a killing of, you know, even a group of people is a very difficult decision. And I, I can really, you know, I understand Heather when, you know, things you know replay in your mind and you question yourself have i been doing the right decision because you've been you've seen some of the imagery and um i'm not sure if i could you know i i don't think you can tell if a person is 14 years old or 16 years old so um and if they're 16 years old that still doesn't mean that they deserve to be killed military age male yeah exactly and then we also hear heather saying well i said this but nobody listened to me and they just spoke to someone else and i couldn't yeah there's a conflict between the ranks um you know like imagery analysts are usually lower ranking people that pilots and sensor operators are higher ranking often officers so you have that tension as well so um a lot of that kind of comes out in 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 this reenactment i think this you know the, the, the problems of having, you know, groups of people at different locations, um, you know, miscommunication that arises out of that. So I think this technology really has to be discussed and this, these flaws have to be discussed. And, you know, I, I think it has really, it is, you know, technology um, has, in this instance, has really, in my mind, has outpaced you know, our laws and rules and regulations and even our moral standards um, to, to a certain extent. Absolutely. And we have to catch up, you know, as a society. And then 
Were any of the participants able to see the film, and if so, what were their responses? Um, we did a, you know, I, I, I did a safe environment screening um, with the, the subjects, the ones who could come, um, two days before the, the world premiere, the Berlin Film Festival, and um, we had their attorney present, and um, and 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 so and and some friends as well, you know, some some support and, and family, and. Um, Doing, I mean, for me that was, you know, of course, a, a very uh, nerve-wracking moment because they had not seen anything. Um, you know, I really wanted to make this production as clean as possible, so they didn't have, you know, any any influence, you know, except, you know, I did, you know, fact-checking with them. I would ask them, you know, questions throughout, and I fact-checked everything myself. Um, but yeah, it, you know, I really wanted to be journalistically clean, but I did a safe environment screening because it is. It is an impactful film, and um, yeah, you know, Heather was actually one of the moments where she was most emotional was during the reenactment because she said it was so real mm-hmm. and it brought back so many memories, and um, and it's you know yeah to you know for her to to see herself and she has been re- really doing very very well since. You know, the film has come out. She's back in school. She has one year left for her um, bachelor's degree, hmm. and um, you know she she's you know she's still working with a therapist, um, and so you know the counseling has been extremely good for her. So she's doing well, and Lisa has really dedicated her life to education. So she has toured with the film throughout the world, pretty much, and is you know like. Whoever wants to talk to her, I think she's very open and willing to discuss her experiences and, you know, and, and her insight into um, drone warfare. So she has really transformed you know, the experience of being part of the film to you know, her outreach and her life's dedication. She's actually also back in school and studying politics and history because she wants to become an educator um, on these issues. And Daniel um, is... There's okay, so there's that's always a difficult part because it it really like the ending of the film um, that his current location is unknown um, has not changed. Um, I have heard very recently that he's well, so um, that makes me extremely happy. So yeah, but it's um, I mean as you can imagine to have this over your head and we still until this point we don't know these investigations can. Go on. It could be closed for what? Wait, like they don't tell you, mm-hmm. and it's really I, I don't I, I don't think you should do that to people, you know, to leave them in this constant situation of fear and and you know and you don't even know what's going on. So um, yeah, it's 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 very disturbing. Absolutely. Any questions? <laughs> A few more. Um, <laughs> so you know, we constantly see Obama throughout the film, and then. You or the participants present evidence that contradicts his statements, but you know we're we've moved forward since the film's been made. So I'm curious if you would say that the state of drone warfare has changed since the making of the film, and if so, how? And then also where you see it going from here? Well, um, I mean everything uh, we are, we've been hearing, you know, during the, the Trump presidency is that he is completely embracing the drone program, and um, you know, with like the the first strikes, you know, in the first weeks of his presidency in in Yemen, um, you know, I've heard from multiple sources that drones were involved in in these 
you know, strikes that have you know gone wrong um, as well. And um, and then he's been debating to you know Obama at the end of his presidency was putting a few more restrictions um, on the program, especially regarding CIA um, drone strikes. And, and and President Trump has been, you know, announcing already to, you know, want, wanting to move in the other directions again and, you know, giving the, the CIA um, the, you know, power back again, which is even less transparent than the, the military drone strikes. And um, he also recently announced that... Um, there has been pressure from the, the weapons manufacturing industry that they want to sell um, more drones abroad. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there has been regulation on, on that, but um, the U.S. government is actually planning, has been announced that they want to deregulate um, drone sales um, you know, abroad as well. So, I mean, it's, it's very clear this weapon is not going to go away, and it's quite the opposite. It's going to proliferate. So I think it's really important, you know, for People to inform themselves and and also be you know become um, active because you know all, all these weapons they always come back too so um, you know and and I think you know I, I understand why drones are being used from a military strategic perspective because you're not putting you know troops in physical harm's way um, you know what really has to be looked at and studied is the psychological harm that is uh, you know it's very clear that it exists for and pilots as well a lot of pilots leave their positions. Um, and 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 then you know of course you know as a military strategy is it increasing or reducing terror you know are drone strikes really you know killing more you know less civilians um, you know some research points to to the opposite too and then the impact on the societies that you know where drones are you know where children are afraid of the sky you know what impact does that have um, you know even on on, on our safety. So for those people in the audience or who are watching this later on UCTV, what would you say in terms of how we can make an impact? Um, I mean, I, I'm not an activist. I, you know, I, I'm a journalist. And actually, that's what I told my, um, my characters um, at the beginning you know, of our production as well, or you know, before we started shooting, because you, know, you saw you know, Daniel is a, is a big activist. And I said... Um, to, to all of them, you know, I, this is, I want this to be a journalistic film. So I really, you know, I purposefully didn't, you know, I, I don't have a narration in the film because um, I really, I didn't want people, I didn't want to tell people what to think. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, you know, I, I wanted to give as much information as possible and have, you know, people really come to their own conclusions and, and thoughts about it. So um, what, what I... Um, be, because there have been so many screenings where people actually have gone, I was like, "How can we get involved? You know, what can we do?" Right. I, um, especially in California, <laughs> um, it, it, like it literally, we've had screenings in the Bay Area. It's like, "What can we do?" Right. And and at first, I said, "It's like, I don't know. Like, you know, you, you you're voters. You can vote. You can protest. You know, it's a free society." But then we actually came. You know, I we we started to you know, we made this get involved page. So I, what I think. You know, we have more information on the website about whistleblowers and support for whistleblowers because I think that's very important. Um, journalists and filmmakers cannot work without whistleblowers. And, you know, by definition, whistleblowers expose waste, fraud, abuse, illegal, you know, criminal activity. It's, you know, there's a big distinction to, you know, spies and, and, and leakers, you know, for profit. A whistleblower is someone who does, you know, who blows the whistle for the public good. 
and they really need support because um, you know the legal costs are, are very high. You know, it's a Courage Foundation. There's Whisper organization. You know, Jessalyn Radek, who's in the film, she works pro bono um, and and defends all all these whistleblowers. So that's very important. And and then um, you know, a lot of people are. Um, very interested about you know the the prosthetics hospital in Afghanistan. Um, you know we have a link to that hospital. It's it's um, it's a hospital run by the Red Cross, um, and it's 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 fantastic. I have to say they they have um, you know most of the doctors who work there actually also have lost limbs and 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 they are just really working you know with like all of their hearts and 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 so much passion and you know they they have. You know, a women's part in the hospital. You know, provide, they provide prosthetics for free. You know, for, to children and men and women. And um, so, and and then we have you know more information about um, just drone, drone warfare. So I think that's the first step to educate yourself. And then you know, I mean, yes, you know, we all have a voice. This is you know a democratic society. And and yes, I think our society has to catch up and and really decide is this the type of warfare that we want in the future. And then could you tell us about what project you're working on next? <laughs> if you can. Maybe you can't. Yeah, I am. Um, it's, I actually got the idea from these screenings um, that I'm working on, on a second part. This is actually this is part of a trilogy. <laughs> and it's, when, I, when I first released National Bird, audience members came up to me and said, so, like, What's the second part? And I said, "What second part?" I hadn't thought about it by the end. And he said, "This is like, this is like the opening to something." And and then I, I started realizing it myself because the stories don't end, right? It's this film really? It's 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 a start to to a lot of things that are happening. So I, I am working on the second part now, which is it's it's with new subjects, new protagonists, and it's it's not about drones, but it's it's about surveillance, and it's it it. it it connects to this. It builds um, on on this film. That's as much as I can say now. Okay. <laughs> but we'll stay tuned for maybe in a few years it should come out. Please do. Yes, I. Um, I mean, it's always depending about um, on on funding. So if there are any funders in the audience, <laughs> I see a lot of funders. <laughs> it's. Um, I mean, documentary film funding is very very tough. There's really it's it, there's not enough. Money in, in in the market. There are so many you know important projects out there, and I think documentarians have been taking over a lot of the investigative journalism work. Um, and yeah, it's it's you know we, we are doing grant writing right now, but you know, I know a lot of like, my friends are you know they all have great important projects. So it's you know and the grants are very very small. So if if I get the funding together, I think I can release in early 2019 um, we can produce within a year but it, it really depends on funding it sounds a lot like being an academic actually <laughs> um, yes. and then my final question so you said you didn't really want to be didactic or drive home a particular message but is there one thing you would like audiences to leave thinking about or you know to carry with them well, I, I really hope this is a film that makes people reflect and think, and that it, it stays with you. And um, and you know, I I, I personally, like, when I when I see it, I still you know, especially you know, when I hear the you know subjects in Afghanistan, you know, share their stories. Um, it's it. I I think you know, 
from my director of photography and me that was it was really impactful you know same as as, as for Lisa you know you saw at the end because it's the the people there and I know all their names we decided not to um, publish their names because you know just to give them you know just a small layer of, of, of protection and they were okay with um, you know showing their faces and and they actually thanked us for being able to share their stories that was the first thing they they traveled to us three days and three nights and I you know I, I I was very concerned about that because it's a dangerous trip we could have never traveled out there it would have been far too dangerous and the first thing they said thank you you know thank you for asking us for our side of the story they didn't have an opportunity to share their stories and and I think that also, you know, may, it made me think about like our privilege of being able to go out and speak out, you know, speak our opinion, you know, have a free press. That's a huge value when something happens to you and you are able to make it public. And we should really like fight and work to preserve that because I, I do believe that it is under threat. And, um, and that's like, that's one thing that I, you know, I think we, we should all, you know, do in our small circles. Um, because for me, this film, it started as a film about drones, but it also became a film about, you know, the cost of whistleblowing, um, the courage of whistleblowers, and um, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, um, you know, what we, you know, trans government transparency, how important it is. Um, and we, you know, unfortunately, we really have to fight for it because I, I don't think... You know, there's a reason to make this program so secret and make it so difficult, you know, to, for people to get information, to get information about collateral damage, to get help for veterans. Um, you know, all of that is, is, is very worrisome. Right, we're going to open it up to questions from the audience at this point. I, th I feel like everybody can be a courageous artist if you're inspired in the right way. And so I, my first question is, what inspires you to be courageous in your art? What inspires me to be courageous? I mean, I, I think my mom would now say I've always been very rebellious. <laughs> um, but I, 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 I was born in Malaysia. I grew up in Germany. And, um, I mean, Germany has a very problematic history. And, you know, also, you know, of course, you know, we have to, we had the Third Reich, but then also, um, you know, East Germany and the Stasi, um, you know, I, I, I studied that and, um, you know, and I'm, you know, and I just see a lot of parallels to today now. And, um, and that's something that I think we should really resist. It's, you know, and, and, and for me, you know, making these films and, and, um, and yes, you know, I, I, I do, I tackle risky subjects. It's, it's, it's really my, my area of interest. And I know, and my mom is always like, can't you do something nice? <laughs> like a music documentary <laughs> or something like that. But it's, 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 it's not really what interests me. And I, it's, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm also a member of the society. And I, 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 I really think this is like, what other option do we have? You know, like, should we just stand by? And, and, you know, watch how, you know, our, you know, our rights are being taken away. I mean, I think the only option that we have is to do something. Otherwise, it just gets worse. And it will, you know, if, if you don't do anything, it's, it's, it's going to increase the risk for everyone if you don't push back as early as possible. And, yeah, data can be, can be used against people in, in, in so many ways from blackmailing 
to yeah just this information collection that really i think self-censorship is a really big concern so um yeah i don't i don't know if you have to be born courageous i think it helps to you know that we encourage each other you know make it a point and and also see other courageous people you know when i see the people in afghanistan it inspires me when i see the whistleblowers because they you know it's i think courageous is it, courage is contagious too when you see other people you know standing up you know we see, we see the two also with the sexual harassment um you know um, reporting right now and you know it's it's you know i think seeing courage is really helpful and encourage other people uh but uh would you just talk a little bit more about some of the uh, sounds that you used in a kind of uh, a poetic and echoing and uh, repetitive way? I'm so glad about this question <laughs> because I, I actually rarely get to talk about the filmmaking because at, at most screenings, people, all they want to talk about is the content. And, you know, that, of course, is, is, is very important. But, um, you know, as a filmmaker, of course, you know, we, you know, I, I, you know, this is a very hard political subject, but I, I also wanted to make a film and, you know, and, and they were an artistic film. And, um, and, and so, yes, you know, we, we paid a lot of attention. You know, I paid a lot of attention to the sound and the soundscape and, you know, the images. I mean, there are a lot of, I'm referencing, you know, multiple other films in this films through sound, through images. And, and yeah, with the sound, I think my, my composers, like, she's extraordinarily talented. And interestingly enough, I found out there are not a lot of female film composers. Um, so yeah, Inza Rudolf, you know, she, she's actually a trained jazz vocalist as well. Um, and you hear her, her voice, but I think she's a fabulous composer. And so she, a lot of it is like our sound design, our composition is really intertwined. Like you, it, it, there was actually a big debate between like the composers, like wait, what is the sound designer doing? And then the sound is like, what is the composer doing? So we actually had to all work together, and I had to make sure that no one felt like, excluded because <laughs> it was like their area, like territory, and so on. And um, yeah, so it it really is a um, so there are a lot of sound. There's not a real. Um, sort of a bomb sound that, you know, I, I don't know. Are you talking about the driving when she, like the, the night shot in the dark when she's driving or the... When she's going to the VA, is that right? Yes, when she's going to the VA. Okay, when she's going it's to... It's in the daytime. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. So there, no, I, we never made like, I, I think that wouldn't have not been subtle enough to make a bomb sound, but we have some sounds that resemble, you know, like uh, there's a lot of, um, there are sounds in there that have sort of a heartbeat. Um, that's what you, you, you sometimes hear, especially when, like when Heather writes a Guardian article. Um, there's a sound. And I, I have to say, I don't know always how my composer cre creates every single sound because she does it so, like, nothing comes out of a computer. Everything is naturally created. So, like, the first sound in a film, it's, it's almost like a breathing sound. Um, she actually... She had a cello player, and they wrapped aluminum foil around the strings, and then he played across the aluminum foil. And like she, she really does very interesting things to create the sounds that she she has in her head, and um, and so um, yeah, and they, they, they we wanted the sound to be very subtle and very organic, 
So that it's more sometimes like, yeah, more like sounds than like a real composition. And, you know, as, as I said, in one, one area, we actually have the sound of a drone. We have the sound of a ceiling fan that's, you know, kind of coming up in, in, in the soundscape. And we actually mixed the film Dolby Surround, which is also pretty unusual for a documentary film. But I think it, it really creates more of an effect, especially when you're in Afghanistan, you hear the helicopter above you. And um, so, yeah, I, I really wanted, you know, to that, that, that you can feel it more. And then also what we used as, um, and, you know, often in films you see when there are emotional moments that there's like a lot of like a lot of sound, a lot of addition. We actually went the other route. I don't know if you noticed when in the most emotional moments, we actually completely cut off this, the music. And like when Heather starts getting emotional, she she always ends in silence. So we use silence a lot in the film as well. So the mix between sounds, music, and silence. So these are kind of the the elements that we we had. And um, and so yeah, the we we we, we and also I, I think what you heard, yes, what you heard in in this car, and um, when she's in in the car, what we did too is we. We often the natural sound we reduced it. So when she, Heather's in traffic, and um, and then the the cars are driving past her, instead of having zzz, it's like whoosh, whoosh. So we we went a little bit in, into um, like what I discussed with the sound designer and the mixers that we almost, you know, did more a little bit of a less natural sound, maybe more of a fiction film where. You know, the sounds would be really reduced to certain sound elements that would represent the car. And it's not like the real traffic sound, but it would be the representation of, of a car. Um, I have to like think about all these, these different things. But yes, we, 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 pay, we spend a lot of time in, in sound. And I think we did like three weeks of, you know, sound mixing and work with like the, the sound designer. I worked very closely with the sound designer. My, I had my composer come in. We all worked together. Um, she, we would send things back and forth, you know, from the sound design. She would incorporate that back into her music. So that's why it's really, it's, it's really intertwined. Um, yeah, it was really important to us. <laughs> Thank you to all of you for, you know, being engaged, being thoughtful, and hopefully... You know, even though Sonia didn't say it herself, we'll become active and continue to speak out and think about these issues because they're only going to continue to become more and more and more disturbingly relevant. So thank you very much to our guest, director and producer of National Birds, Sonia Kennebec. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.